Hi everybody, this is episode 40 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. This evening, I'm joined by Len Weins here. How's it, Len? Hey, how's it, everybody? I'm Kevin McKelvin, and we are joined by Simon Stewart. Hey, Simon. Hey, hi. So this evening, we are talking about uh, de software development for Apple, particularly with Swift. And Simon's here to come in and enlighten us a bit since he's got some familiarity with the tooling and spoken at a couple of conferences about that. So Simon, just to open up, could you give us an introduction of yourself? Sure, sure, I can do that. Um, so I've been working in, in the software field for quite a while and I've done a fair amount of, of the Microsoft stack and spent a, a good couple of years on uh, Node and really focusing on the JavaScript, JavaScript side. And for the last sort of two years, I've been spending more and more time on Swift and doing native iOS apps, um, mostly for initially for myself, just to kind of get get the ball rolling, and more and more for customers, which has been um, an interesting interesting departure from stock standard corporate style development. Cool. So, particularly Swift. Um, what got you into Swift in the first place? So I think step one is to is to get yourself a Mac and then feel bad that you spend so much money on the hardware and you actually <laughs> want to get use out of it. That was probably 50% of the reason for getting into it. But I think it also came at a good time because it coincided with um, WWDC uh, almost two years ago where they announced it. And I was certainly kind of hoping that they would announce that they were going to go the JavaScript side and uh, forget about all the, the native stuff and actually... Uh, kind of just go directly to to JavaScript like everyone else has done, um, but for reasons beyond beyond anyone, I think they've gone a different route. Uh, but Swift is a really interesting language. It's a really modern language, and it doesn't have the same kind of visual baggage that that Objective C has. So it's been a it's been a fun it's been a fun detour. Cool. So you've been getting into uh, iOS application development. You mentioned and with Swift. Uh, what kind of visual baggage are you talking about with Objective-C and um, compared to Swift? What what do you find is the appeal of Swift over Objective-C? Well, I think step number one is I can't actually read Objective-C. When you look at it, it just seems so <laughs> so foreign. Uh, it it really is. I think it's just it's it's one of these. Well, the way I see it is a very much an outlier style language, uh, and I, that kind of makes sense that Apple wanted to refresh it and maybe make it a bit more accessible to the masses, which, which I'm guessing is the reason behind going uh, the, the kind of C-style syntax, because it's familiar to anyone that's done C-sharp or JavaScript or Java uh, or a whole host of other languages that have gone that, that route for the syntax. Yeah, that Objective-C is kind of weird to get your head into, I found. Um, I heard Uncle Bob uh, speaking about it and calling it an accident of history. That's, uh, that sounds like a pretty good uh, description of it. <laughs> it just looks it just looks really strange, and I think you you'll pick it up. I guess uh, I've been lucky that I haven't had to write very much Objective C, but there's very much a, a one to one mapping between what you had to do in Objective C and what you what you can do now in Swift, which is great because it makes it easier to copy and paste things off off Stack Overflow as as we all do, and you can paste it into uh, there's a website that actually will do a conversion between Objective-C and Swift. And it's pretty much a one-to-one, -one, which is which is useful. Nice. And and what's the community adoption of it been like? Has the Apple developer community embraced Swift as 
as much as um, Apple would have liked them to? Or are there still these general pockets of Objective-C coders who prefer that? What, what does the terrain look like? So I, I think it's, I think you're always going to have, have the diehards that want to stick with Objective-C. Uh, so I don't think that's ever going to go away completely. But I think if you were starting a new project now, I think it would be crazy to do anything other than, than Swift. But if you had a large code base to try and rewrite the whole thing purely just to, just to tick a box that it's a newer syntax, I don't think would make any sense either. Um, but again, the fact that it's, that it's pretty much a one-to-one mapping uh, makes it easy. So you don't have to, you can copy and paste Objective-C and convert it into Swift and vice versa. And there's no real, uh, no real, there's no real issue in doing that. So you could be in a team with people that were using Objective-C and uh, to some degree, you're going to speak the same language. Is the, so I know that most of the Apple libraries are of course written in Objective-C, like the, the system support libraries and especially under iOS. There are things that aren't in Swift yet. Um, how much does that impact your sort of adoption of Swift, or can you just ignore the the fact that they're in Objective C and just talk to their APIs? So, in terms of the APIs, I don't know whether they've rewritten all of it. I doubt it. Uh, they've probably written the wrappers for it to make it look a lot more natural to Swift developers. Yeah, but as far as I understand, that's the case. Yeah. I'd, I'd reckon so, but there's no issue in calling Objective-C code from Swift. It's, it's, a, it's a trivial thing to do. So a lot of the libraries that exist, like you know, menus that kind of fly out from the left-hand side, that typical kind of hamburger uh, menu, there's a, a popular library that's written in Objective-C. And it, there's no real reason for the person to redo it in Swift because you can use it uh, pretty natively from Swift. Okay, that's awesome. So how long did it take you to learn Swift? Is it an easy language to learn? So the syntax is pretty simple. I think it's it's like most things. Once you've learned a couple of languages, to learn a syntax is not going to be a mission. But to get a handle for for how the whole process works in, in Xcode, uh, Xcode takes a while to get into. Uh, and it's not, um, it's not the cleanest entry into computer science. So I, I don't think it's the ideal... Uh, first IDE for someone if anyone was planning to jump straight into it uh, because there are lots of there's lots of moving parts it's not a it's not a trimmed down IDE and I think all of these IDEs that have been around for a long period of time they're all pretty much in the same boat that they're trying to do everything um, but the syntax itself I think is good it's it's been a bit of a moving target there have been some some breaking changes that they've introduced and I think they're going to be doing the same at the end of the year when they introduce Swift 3. Um, but I don't see that as being a hugely negative thing. I think they're doing it for a good reason. They're not just doing it because they've changed their mind. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so maybe let's talk a little bit about the language itself. What are the, what are the cool features of the language? So I've got to written down a couple of things. So I'll kind of jump around and we can kind of see how far, how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. Okay, um, cool. I've got my coffee. I'm ready. That's always good. Uh, so one of the cool things is uh, good support of tuples or tuples. Um, so I think anyone that's familiar with Python is, has seen that. I know it's something that's coming out in the new version of C Sharp that's still being developed. Um, but that's it's a useful it's a useful part of the language to have. So just, having, just for for us unfamiliar with tuples, what are they? So I think in some respects you could view them as maybe like an anonymous type. Right. Uh, if you've done any, any kind of C-sharp work. So instead of returning one variable from a function or instead of returning 
maybe using out parameters, you can return something that has multiple values. So in some respects, I guess it's similar to maybe a dictionary. Um, I think there's a lot of kind of overlap between different, different languages, kind of have different interpretations of it. Um, so you could return maybe a string and an int or a string and a, and a Boolean, that sort of thing. Is that um, similar to the way that Go handles that, having multiple return values as part of the function definition? Uh, and then say you're returning a string and an int, then you can return multiple values from it. Is it, in, is it anywhere uh, similar uh, to that? A, a tuple is an actual type. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin, I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of how it actually gets used. Uh, so you can say, so in the example, I'm just reading from the example, they say, let HTTP 404 error equal, then you've got open bracket 404 comma not found as a string close bracket. The HTTP 404 error is a tuple with multiple things inside of it. Yeah. It gets a particular type, like int, comma, string inside it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 100%. It's also something that you see in um, uh, in ES6 as well. So they have a, I think they call it um, short destructuring maybe, where it comes out of a function and it's, it kind of unpacks itself into multiple variables. I think it's destructuring. I'd have to double check that. Um, but it's something that I think a lot of the, the modern languages are using. And it's something that's coming out in C-sharp as well. You can, in Go, the most analogous thing would be a struct, okay. in, 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 my, in my view, yeah. Uh, would it not be sort of, well, I suppose in many ways it would be a struct, but an ordered array, or, or an array of given ordered types. So your first element is a string, your second can be an integer. Uh, I suppose in many ways that's a struct as well. Yeah, uh, and then you depends can, on how you you're looking of, at it. Yeah, you can destructure them as, as Simon's saying. So you can say, mm. let status code comma status message equal HTTP four hundred four error, and that would then unpack it variables for sure. And it's a, it's an indexed thing as well. So you've it's got to be in the right in the right order, which I think is one of the criticisms. But it's um, it makes sense, and it also means you don't have to go and define an explicit type because there's a degree of I guess they do code gen in the background to 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 fudge it, I would reckon. So um, does Swift then have generic types? Swift has generic types as well. So I think using these these tuples would be great for a uh, like a very lightweight construct. But if you wanted to have a, a long-lasting object type that has certain behavior and that kind of thing, I don't think you would necessarily use a tuple. Yeah, I think a lot of these features are built, and it's possibly interesting to talk about the the history of Swift coming from LLVM and the guys building that side of it. It looks like LLVM itself supports uh, tuples, if I understand it correctly. But that may, that, that may be further down the rabbit hole than we want to go right now. <laughs> so I think that's further down the rabbit hole than most people should go. <laughs> but, um, it, look, it's got to be supported in the, in the underlying uh, you know, the underlying compiler and the underlying framework. Uh, it can't necessarily just be a a syntax thing because it's going to end up in being terrible compiled code. Yeah, yeah. But to just touch on that, what you're saying is it might be code generation. Is I don't think it is code generation. I think there's like native support in the the runtime for tuples, so they don't you don't have to do anything when you're compiling them. You can literally put out all like bytecode if you like. I, I guess. I guess. I'm not. I'm not one to go and dig through the dig through the bytecode, but I'm. I would reckon there's there's obviously good underlying support for it. Yeah. So you say there is some kind of destructuring that you've got in Swift. Is that right? 
Well, for tuples specifically, yes. yeah. So for, for tuples, so it's it's very much like the um, very much like the ES6 thing. So the, the syntax is very much the same, uh, which which makes sense. But I think it's probably more of a a tuple specific thing. But can you then do something like pattern matching with that? So with the example of a 404 status code, would you be able to, or, or a status code and a string, uh, be able to pattern match based on the status code and destructure to get to the string? Or is that something no, that's, no, that's no, not no, in Swift? That's, that's not. Look, there's, you can do pattern matching in, uh, in Swift. So there is that degree of kind of functional, functional language. Uh, if you can do it specifically with a tuple, I'm not sure. I guess it's one of those things you've got to just play around with the syntax and, and see if that works. Okay. Uh, but anyway, beyond, beyond the tuples, which are so one of these things, I think if you're not used to, you probably end up using a bit too much, and then you end up stop using, which I think is very much like, uh, like generics when it came out on the Microsoft side. Everyone used them, and then you gradually kind of wean yourself off and kind of go back to more basic, basic syntax. Uh, the enums, they've got enums in Swift, which is the same as, as many other languages, but they actually take it a bit further. And it's almost like, a, in some respects, almost like a mini object per enum that you can pass in parameters, which makes for pretty interesting, uh, interesting syntax. Um, it's a bit difficult to explain. It's one of those things you just got to see. You've got to actually see the syntax to, to make sense. Because um, I'm used to enums as being glorified constants in a containing object, like we've got in uh, in C sharp and a whole bunch of other languages. Yeah, Java as well. Yeah. Yeah. Just looking at the doc here, it looks it's it looks quite similar to the way Rust handles enums. Cool. Um, uh, which, I think all these all these language designers hang out in the same bars and they copy each other. I think. Yeah, it's all copying <laughs> Haskell. <laughs> possibly, possibly. <laughs> so now, so now, Swift is dynamically typed. Is that right? You, you just say like x equals quote something. You don't have to say string. Yeah, but that's more of a, a compiler concern, though. I mean, I, I think it's very much a statically typed language, as far as I know. It's type safe. It's strongly like, but but the types are inferred. So you can yes, you can. The way you can you can define a variable is you can rely on the type inference, but you can also, if you wanted to, you you could explicitly define the type as well. Okay, cool. So you don't really need to do that for the most part. I think it's. It just comes down to whether it's a an int or a float, and and specifically what you were implying in the in the code. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. So beyond beyond that, um, so there's pattern matching, which again is something that doesn't really translate very well to a podcast, um, but there is pattern matching, and mm-hmm. something else that they introduced as well is uh, so like a combination of the let keyword and the guard keyword, uh, which is a pretty interesting thing. So the, these are very much or very similar constructs. So you can think of the guard uh, keyword or the guard function, I guess, in some respects, as almost like an assert. So the way that I typically write code is at the top of the function, I'll check for some kind of negative state. I'll check to make sure that parameters have been passed in and they're not null or not empty or something to that effect. And with the guard, you can actually create this almost like an assert, and you can assert something is true. And if it isn't true, you can define a block of code. And in that block of code, you have to return out of the function, which is really useful because it means that you've guaranteed that if if that negative state occurs, that that bit of code is actually going to exit the function. You get a you get a like a valid return from the function, but it just comes from the guard and not the function body itself. Is that right? Correct. So you, I guess you could throw an exception, um, but if you were to return, you'd have to return whatever would be valid for the function. Yeah. Yeah. 
that you could sort of return defaults or an error in the tuple or whatever, you, whatever protocol you decided on. Exactly. So that's a really interesting construct. I haven't really seen anything uh, like that in the other languages that I've used. Uh, the let keyword is, is kind of similar. You can actually use them together. Um, and with the let, you can try and get a value out of a function or out of another parameter or another variable. And if that parameter does exist and, and is in a, in a usable state, then it will execute the rest of that if statement. So use the if and the let kind of together, um, which is useful. Again, it's something you've got to see the syntax to actually to actually make sense of it. Uh, but for me, it's just around trying to keep the code as secure and as robust as possible. But uh, that would then be to have the variable um, only bound into the scope of that if construct not accessible from outside of it. Would that be right? So with the let, you're correct. So with the let, yeah. it's only going to be within that, in that, um, in that construct. Uh, with the guard, it's for the entire, uh, for the entire function, What's which is useful because in theory, you're going to check that if, if it's in a negative state, it's going to go into that else block and you're going to exit the function. So the fact that it's now potentially polluting the, like the global state in the function is actually okay because it's in a good state. Right, right. Ooh. So again, it's one of those things you just have to have to see. Yeah, I think without seeing it, it doesn't always make a lot of sense. Um, but related to guards, I think, um, is error handling in general. How, how does Swift approach the fact that things go wrong? And how do you recover from that? So this is one of the really interesting things. And I don't understand the reasoning behind it. And I think it's one of the things that's caused a bit of a negative publicity from from some of the existing like iPhone and and uh, OS 10 developers is the fact that they didn't introduce error handling as part of the initial release of the language. It was something that, that came out afterwards. I'm not sure if it was Swift 2 or maybe just prior to that, um, but it was a bit of a bolt-on. And it kind of reminds me a bit of the, the error handling syntax from Java, where you need to define the like the error is part of your function signature, that sort of thing. Um, it's not really my favorite part of the language. Maybe I'm just used to a bit of the brute force error handling of, of JavaScript or, or other languages. Um, I think with Swift, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, I guess, but you've got to think through your design a bit better. Uh, you can't just wrap a whole bunch of code in a try-catch and just hope for the best. You've got to actually define exactly which of the functions you're calling can throw an exception. And then depending whether you rethrow that exception out, it kind of populate or uh, kind of contaminates the call stack. And you've got to then define each of those functions as being something that can throw an error. Okay, so you do have errors that exceptions that can be thrown uh, and then caught further up the stack. Yes, and, and, and they will, much like a Java or a C Sharp, they'll unwind the stack until such point they get caught or that uh, it exits the stack and crashes the thread. As far as I know, you've got to actually mark the, the functions that you call that can throw an exception. You've got to actually be explicit about catching things, uh, which for me kind of comes back to the idea of pattern matching, where they're kind of enforcing you to, they're forcing you to behave. And I think that's a good, a good design pattern to follow, as cumbersome as it can be. Cool. We've all gone off to write our own little soft programs now. We'll be back in a bit. <laughs> all, all updating our LinkedIn profile. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I've done Swift 101 with Simon Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so let me have a quick look. There's a couple of other interesting things uh, in no particular order. Um, 
So you can put emojis in your code now, which is quite funny. Uh, it's not necessarily <laughs> something you want to take into production. Um, but if you want to put unicorns into your startup code, you can now put unicorns in the code. That means so, wait, um, so, so I can name a class unicorn if I wanted to. I guess you can. I mean, I've used, <laughs> I've used emojis for, for variable names. Uh, I'm guessing you can use it for functions. So you can, you can new up a unicorn if you really wanted to. <laughs> What, what that really this. means it's uh, it's UTF-8 support, right? Yeah, but it's more more importantly, you can put emojis in your code now. Then let's let, let's throw it out there the way everyone cares. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so that's that was interesting. Um, there's obviously a good reason behind that. Maybe it's more the internationalization, um, but I was more interested in the fact that you can put unicorns and and things like that in your syntax. Uh, they've also, which is really strange. They've gone for optional semicolons, which I kind of shake my head at a little bit because we've had that for so many years in, in JavaScript. And you can now do it in Swift. Even though you don't see semicolons in production Swift code, I haven't seen anyone that actually does it. It's, it is something that you can do. It just seems weird that they'd bother doing it uh, when they're trying to enforce a whole bunch of new kind of practices. Why not just say, let's get rid of the semicolon? So they're optional. Uh, it's not that if I do put one in, it's not invalid syntax. Correct. So if you, you want to be the outlier and, and post all your questions in Stack Overflow and have semicolons, then um, then you can do that. And everyone will think you're writing Rust. The, uh, the, the reason I think it's weird is the fact that in, in the next release of Swift, or at least the major uh, Swift 3 at the end of the year, they're getting rid of the old C style for loop and the um, the plus plus and minus minus uh, shorthand for increments and decrement, which I don't really know if it's a big deal. I don't see I don't see it being an issue to leave it in. Uh, but obviously they want to try and create a, a more modern language, uh, which kind of begs the question for me that why they just didn't leave it out in the beginning. So maybe it's more of a, a crutch to help people get into the syntax, and once they're in, then they start cleaning. Uh, just one, one further question about the semicolons then, uh, because language language was a thought about this every day. Um, is it like JavaScript uh, or where you've got um, semicolons get inserted at compile time? Uh, is it like Go where they've got very specific rules about semicolons at the end of lines that um, it actually dictates some of the syntax of what you can end a line with and what you can't end a line with? Kevin, I can't believe that they're inserting semicolons if they kind of imply that you shouldn't put them in. Well, I mean, like Go, Go, for example, you don't write your code with semicolons, but it, uh, at compile time, they've got automatic semicolon insertion. So you have you can't end um, the line, or rather, you, you can't begin a line with a dot as a, a method dispatch. Um, if you if you're chaining off the last line, you have to end the line with a dot, and then uh, that that's a signal to the um, uh, to the compiler or to the parser, I guess, uh, not to insert semicolon at that point. So uh, I just don't know what the similarity may be with Swift on that. Maybe goes just a weird child. It well, I think that's probably true. It, it could be it could be that they're doing that. Um, the compiler is not exactly that fast, so they're probably doing a whole bunch of things in the background. Um, I haven't seen any code. I don't think I've actually seen any Swift code that has semicolons explicitly okay. in in the in the syntax. So I'm not sure. Uh, the other thing that's pretty cool is the optional chaining. So if you can imagine, you've got a 
an object that's got a child object and that's got a property and you want to use the property, what you typically do is you check to make sure that the the parent is a null and then you check to make sure the child or the parent's child is not null and then you do something with the property. With Swift, what you can do is you can actually use question marks after each of the objects and it will kind of cease execution for that line if it hits a null, uh, which is nice. It's just a nice shortcut. So it doesn't affect anything fundamentally. It's just a shortcut to prevent the the long kind of pyramids of doom that head out to the right. Mm, not quite sure how I feel about that. Uh, Ruby is getting something similar in the next version. Uh, I know CoffeeScript had that kind of thing where you could say question mark dot, uh, and that would be a, a, a safe dispatch. Interesting. It's, it's actually, I think it's actually pretty cool. Uh, and again, it's something that I think C Sharp has got. Um, I think, I think yeah, the most recent version of C Sharp has introduced that, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it's one of those things that's probably going to get misused, but if you use it the way I think it's designed to be used, it's, uh, it's yeah, a nice I suppose anything can be abused. Anything can be abused. Um, and the next thing they've got is computed properties, which is quite an interesting interesting thing. So imagine like a, like a property that only has a getter, and in the getter you can have a chunk of code that gets executed. So every time you call the property, it runs that that piece of code. Okay, very similar to C sharp to give you the result. And um, I don't know. It's it's actually been a while since I've done done much C sharp, so I'm not sure if they've got something similar. Uh, you can do the same thing in C sharp with a with a getter on the property yeah. that doesn't have a. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Variable. Is it not? Uh, is it not the same kind of concept though? It's exactly the same concept. I think probably when it compiles down, it's probably very much the same concept. Uh, it's just a bit of a okay. syntax, bit of syntax sugar, I think, and. Yeah, so there's there's different package managers for Swift, which is which is useful. So anyone that's done anything like npm or NuGet or, um, or pretty much any language has got a package manager. So there's a couple package package managers for Swift. Uh, I think there's also a new one coming out when Swift three comes out, uh, the Swift package manager. So I'm not sure how that's going to compete with the existing ones like uh, Cocoa Pods. But uh, I think competition is good as long <laughs> as no one does a left pad function. No, that one's going to hurt for a while. And yeah, <laughs> what the left pad thing? Yeah, yeah. I think maybe I must get shirts made for <laughs> for the con conference. And we can fit we can fit the whole function on it. There's only like ten lines of code anyway. You've got to do that. <laughs> Is sharing code in Swift not like? Um, so say I write a package and I want to share it. Do I have to kind of choose the the package I want to share it in? Or, or is it like a, it's a global place I can publish the code to? Len, as far as I'm aware, they're different, they're different silos. Uh, I don't know if there's one single Okay, so it's something I, I kind of need to mechanisms. pay attention to and choose um, one when I'm starting a project? Okay. So that's my understanding. Could be yeah. wrong. Uh, but if you look at some of the open source libraries, they'll have examples for usage of using CocoaPods and um, Cartage is another one. Uh, so it doesn't make sense that there's one single yeah. uh, like repository in the background that these are all pulling out of because then there's no real benefit to have Yeah, different... and I'm guessing it would be a pain, like a real pain, to switch from one to the other. I'd, I'd reckon. At the moment, all of my code has been uh, for commercial use. So I haven't, rightly or wrongly, I haven't uh, contributed to anything open source in Swift yet. Yeah, but, but you're using one of those as a resource in your projects? 
I am. I'm using several libraries from CocoaPods, but it's really just a way of getting it into your into your project. Okay, cool. And, and then those things come down as source code. Um, yes, yes, they do. So it's very much like how npm works with Node. Okay, cool. So the little packages have versions on them, and you can just use, you have some way to control which versions you pull in. Correct. So you've got a you've got a config file of sorts, and in that you can specify the name of the package and the the version that yeah, you yeah. want to pull down. Okay, that's cool. Which version you want to pull down. So it is pretty cool. Um, and the other thing around around Swift, which I think is kind of why it's going to become more important, is the fact that it's moving or because it's open source. Uh, it means that you can watch the whole language unfold on GitHub, which is a really interesting thing to do. Uh, regardless of whether you're interested in actually how to make languages, which I'm not, to be honest, uh, but it means that you can actually follow the discussion around who's doing what, when features are going to come out, uh, why they're doing certain things. And it's, it's again, kind of using the Microsoft thing. It's, it's similar to what they're doing in C-sharp as well, where they've opened it up. Uh, but I think it's, um, it's a useful thing. It just aids the whole transparency idea with the language. It, it's definitely a very interesting language. It's got a huge pedigree. I mean, the guys who who building it are super bright. Yeah, 100%. And, and also it's moving on to the server side as well. There's a couple of libraries that you can use to, to really go the whole kind of isomorphic uh, Swift, I reckon, if, if that's even a phrase, uh, similar to what we had in JavaScript a couple of years ago. Uh, and that's really useful. So if you're doing native iPhone development and you want to have Swift on the server, you can now do that, which is a, which is a fantastic move. Yeah, I see that Swift comes for Linux and OS X by default. Yeah, that, that is right. And there's also been a, um, a pull request done to actually enable it for Android to some degree. Uh, that's still kind of up in the air. I mean, the, the pull request has been merged back into, into the main chunk of code for Swift. Uh, but exactly what that's going to mean going forward, I'm not sure. But the idea that you can now write, potentially write Swift for Android and iOS, I think, is quite an interesting move. So surely that would require some support from Google for the Android to, to sort of expose the, the Android APIs to Swift, right? Well, that would probably use that Android NDK, the, the native development kit that Android supplies. Because um, you can bind to that from C++, C, uh, Rust, anything that's, uh, that can compile to ARM. Okay, cool. So that just leaves Windows, right? <laughs> What's that? Windows, that operating system. Uh, I've heard about this. I think, I think even Windows, honestly, I think they've kind of given up on the whole mobile approach, to be honest. I think they've gone the, the route of supplying tools and supplying server components. So you can write your apps in whatever you want, and you can host them on whatever you want. But I think targeting actual Windows phone, um, I've never bought into. And it just seems like the, the, uh, the market share is just kind of gone through the floor. And what about Windows Desktop? Is there, a, I mean, this is compiling x86 for Mac, so is it possible to compile an x86 for Windows with Swift? So I'm sure it is. Uh, I just, I really struggle to see the, the market for native Windows applications anymore. If you're doing, you want, you want to write some component that's going to be delivered to n number of users, you can just do it on the web. I don't see the, the need to actually have someone install something, unless you're doing something that hits the hardware and you want to start recording things and mixing audio and, and that kind of stuff. But that's such a niche market. 
Yeah, and, and most of the time you'll probably be writing web servers or something, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't, I don't know, would you be hosting that on Windows? Probably not, right? Yeah. I don't know, it's, it's just a question of curiosity, really. So I'd be really interested to see what Microsoft does going forward, but even looking at their, their build conference from from a couple of weeks ago, I didn't see much mention of Windows mm. Phone as, a, as an actual entity. I think the idea of making tools that people can use for whatever they want to use them for, I think that's the direction. Um, but I could be wrong. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. But I wouldn't go and buy a Windows phone anymore. Yeah. Once bitten, twice shy. <laughs> well, in my case, once, once too many, yes. So I want to talk a bit more about Swift language, something that I don't think we've dealt with yet. Um, is it object-oriented? Is it functional? Uh, where does it fit on that spectrum? So I think it's got, it's got elements of both. So you can write object-oriented code and inherit from things and encapsulation and polymorphism, that kind of thing. Um, and there are elements of the functional language as well. So things like, like pattern matching, as an example. Um, so you do get bits of both. I don't think it's a purely functional language. And I also don't think that, that languages nowadays tend to push the object orientation as much as they did maybe 10 or 15 years ago. It's more just the elements are there and you can use object orientation, but it, you don't typically see people kind of promoting that like on the on the front page of a language. Mm. But, but you say you do have some kind of inheritance. You do have. You've got inheritance. You've got uh, interfaces as well. They call them protocols in, in Swift, but it's the same thing. And yeah, so you've got all the basic constructs of object orientation. So you've got classes. A class can inherit another class or a protocol. Uh, then you would define methods on that class much the same as you would in a C-sharp or a Java. But that's one of multiple ways of doing it. Okay. Correct. Uh, but even going through basic tutorials in in Swift, you're going to end up inheriting from things and implementing interfaces, that kind of thing. question I'm dying to ask here is, can you do multiple inheritance of classes? I actually haven't tried that. Uh, I think maybe it's because of so many years of doing C-sharp where we didn't have that. Um, I doubt they've added it. Uh, I, I don't know if it makes sense. There's obviously a reason Microsoft didn't do it when .NET came out in, what, 2000, 2001. Um, I haven't tried to do it in Swift. I haven't needed to at this point. Yeah, the, the problem is normally the diamond problem, um, trying to figure out where to resolve if you've got methods with the same name and so on. But That could be. I mean, maybe, maybe that's one of the reasons they didn't do it. Um, it was, you know, I think when even when... When C Sharp came out, it was viewed as a major limiting factor of the language. But very quickly, I think people just realized they didn't really need it and they just kind of moved on. So it didn't really slow anything down. And I, I can't see the same not happening in Swift. Cool. So we've chatted through quite a lot of the uh, language features, um, classes, structs, uh, methods, functions. Uh, we've, we've spoken about some of the, um, the error handling functions. Um, what about memory management? Is it garbage collected? Or, or does it go more the Objective-C route of being reference counted? As far as I'm aware, it does the same as Objective-C. Okay. So it uses it uses ARC. So ARC, but, but not necessarily the same RAII that you have in C++. Uh, yeah, okay. you, you're, not, it, it's, you're not defining destructors and calling destructors on method exits and things like that. It's working based on the reference counting. Okay. No, you don't need to. It, yeah, so it is using reference counting. So you don't need to 
you don't need to worry about destroying anything that you're creating. This looks pretty interesting. Len, what are you thinking? I think it's great. I think it's, it's quite low level. So you're going to get a lot of performance, especially because it's so close to LLVM. It's designed, I think, to be highly optimized at runtime. So coming back to you, one of your initial comments, Simon, about why they didn't go for JavaScript, and I think the main reason there is performance. You're going to be able to squeeze every inch of performance you, you want out of the Swift program because it is locally compiled and super optimized. And I think it's got everything you could want for it. It's got first-class functions, it's got inheritance, got protocols, got some pretty nice uh, syntax things for subscripts and properties, which you know, make, you make one's life as a programmer much easier. But it looks impressive. So the one thing that it, it doesn't have or doesn't deal with very well natively, which I was quite surprised about, is uh, JSON. So if you're calling a, an API on the web and you're getting JSON back, although you can use it, it's pretty cumbersome to, to dig into the JSON and actually pull out what you want. And I think some of that comes down to, to the nullable types and having to always tell the compiler that you know that this is uh, nullable, but it actually contains a value and you've got to kind of unwrap things the whole time. Uh, there are a couple of libraries that help you with that, but it was one of the things I was surprised about. I really thought that they would bring something out to make JSON support first class. I don't see how you can have a modern language that doesn't have really good JSON support. Yeah, okay, that's very interesting. So, like, I mean, you're sort of touching on the, the bigger issue around um, serializing and deserializing from different formats. So, like things like XML, is, is there support for that? I haven't looked. Uh, Len, it's been quite a while since I've done XML. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there must be some support, uh, but I haven't, I haven't looked. I'm trying to think when last I used uh, any XML stuff. I think it's like configs and, and build configuration and that sort of thing, but not actually in run, at runtime. Okay. But it, it sounds like the problems you're describing, though, are more um, related to the language for example, the fact that you have to declare types as nullable uh, rather than problems with um, serialization formats. So XML would probably um, hit the same kinds of issues that you're describing here. Yeah, I'm just bringing it up as an example of a different format. Because obviously you're writing these uh, client apps in you know, to run on iOS or something, and they, they, in most cases, I'm guessing, would need to talk to a server. Would need some sort of like RPC mechanism, which would then get down to how do I serialize and deserialize the data flowing across the wire? So in general, how's the RPC support, and how would you do that in an iOS app written in Swift? So if you're just going to call like web methods, you're going to call some sort of REST API. Um, you you can do that pretty easily. I just found that the manipulation of the JSON that you get back just to be a bit cumbersome. Uh, but I think it's in some respects it leaves the door open for third-party components to come in and, and fill the gap, which they've started to do. Okay. So things like HTTP support, is that in the standard libraries or, you know, how, how do they approach that? Yes, it is. So you can, you can pretty easily call, call remote endpoints, passing data in and getting data back. Um, the only issue that I found is to kind of convert that data that you get back into a usable format without having to kind of dig into dictionaries the whole time and, and use magic strings, things like that. But again, that's where libraries like uh, Swifty.js or Swifty.json comes in. 
Uh, that's one of the libraries that wraps that return value and gives it to you in a, in a more usable format. Um, what's the testing story like in Swift? So there are, there are third-party libraries, uh, but there's also built-in unit tests as well. So you can write unit tests, you can obviously call into your functions, you can get results, you can uh, measure performance, you can do asserts, and there's also an automated front-end testing component as well, similar to something like Selenium, for those that have used web, uh, have done automated web testing. So when you're working with Xcode, would you generally just use the built-in tools that um, that Swift and Xcode provide? For unit testing, yeah, I, I think it's fine. Um, I think to, to try and introduce a bunch of additional components too early on, I, I've never really agreed with that approach. Um, but I think it's also maybe useful to have a bit of an R&D session and play around with different things and see what's, what works best. Yes, but it's much like the, the discussion between do you use MSTest or NUnit or XUnit.net? Kind of have to experiment a bit. Exactly. I think, I think it's all a bit, a bit in reach, really. I think as long as you've got, if you're actually writing unit tests, you're doing more than 99% of anyone else. So then the argument becomes a bit, a bit odd. So I suppose related to testing and to some of the discussion we had about JSON earlier, um, on a scale of one to, well, one to Java, how's the maturity of the language? I think it's a tricky question to answer because the, the language is only, has been out less than two years. It's very much a new thing. And, and I think it's tricky to compare where Swift is with where other languages that have been around for 10 or 15 or 20 years. Um, I've, I've seen some negative comments from people about it not being production ready. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I've got, I've got several apps in the store that are, that are production ready, or at least in the store, maybe not production ready. And, and I know of many other apps that are getting written in, in pure Swift. So I don't see it being a, I don't think it's too early to use it. Not at all. And is the community growing in such a way that you'd be confident that it, there'll be a community around this in sort of five years time? So I remember when, when Apple first announced this two years ago, they were saying that this was going to be the language for the next 20 years. So this is not a, a stop gap between Objective-C and them doing something else next year or the year after. I think this is very much a long-term mission for them. And the community is huge. There's a, a ton of resources out there. And even if you you can't find something in Swift and you end up finding it's an Objective-C, it's easy enough to decipher what, what's going on. Uh, so I think that the longer it's around, the more mature it's going to be and the more resources there are. Um, but there's a, a huge amount of resources in Swift. And the language documentation, is that up to scratch? So the, the official stuff from Apple is very good. It really is. It goes into a, a huge amount of detail of, of the syntax and of all the, the underlying classes. And, and that, I mean, that's more than sufficient. But even if you want more, there's, there's online courses and there's books that have been written. So there's a, a ton of stuff. And you can really choose which flavor you want to go for. And there's going to be enough material to keep you busy. Cool. Now that sounds great. It sounds like they've really covered the bases, and it's uh, it does look production ready from what I've what I'm looking at here. Uh, it's currently Swift language version 2.2 as we're recording this, and no, it, it looks great. There's certainly frustration. This frustration I've had is when they bring out new versions of Swift. Um, there's often compiler errors that you get, which which is a bit of an issue. Um, but most, for the most part, they've been very minor. It's not like you have to refactor an entire class. 
it's just like they've modified a function signature or they've changed uh, some of the looping constructs, things like that. So it's not like it's something that you have to start rewriting big chunks of code. Is there then no guarantee that code that was written for Swift 2.0 is going to compile in Swift 2.2 or the next generation 2.3? Okay. So it's not semantically versioned. It's not. And I, I also know that the, the changes from Swift 3, I think, are also going to break some things. Um, but I think, again, for such a, a young language, for them to start incurring technical debt in the syntax, I think, is unnecessary. I suppose it's just a different approach then. Um, I, I really like the semantic version approach that once you've hit, say, version 1, that anything else that uh, subsequently hits from version 1 on uh, up until before version 2 uh, should compile. Uh, so code that's written for one one point one, I would want to be able to just compile automatically or without any extra work on one five. Say, uh, but as you say, with with the young language, it's a different way of them working. Uh, it's probably better for the in the long run for the language that they do cut their losses and uh, make these changes rather than incur the debt over, over the next twenty years if they're, if they're aiming for a language to run for twenty years. For sure. And as, as bad as I find Xcode to be, it does prompt you to, to convert certain things. So for instance, going, if you've got a, a C style for loop and you've also got things like an mm. I within the for loop, it'll actually prompt you to change both of those and it will do it for you. So you can, you know, you can opt in for it to change that line and it's going to convert it for you. Yeah. Those kinds of refactorings or changes are rather mechanical. Uh, so it should be able to fix most of those kinds of things, I guess. If it has an AST of your code and they're changing it from one form to another, it does make sense that your compiler tools uh, or your, your editing tools should be able to make the change for you. Oh, this is very cool. I like what I'm seeing. Um, perhaps just, uh, Len, I don't know if you've got any other questions. I just want to chime one last thing about then uh, Swift on Linux. Uh, would you consider using Swift to build an HTTP server? So that's going to be our next our next kind of R and D project is to try and get uh, to try and do that to go the, the hello world on a on a server um, similar to what we all did when Node came out and and see if it makes sense. See if there's any actual difference between doing that in Swift and doing that in Node, uh, both from a performance point of view, maintainability, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I think to presume that one person's only ever going to know one syntax is is naive. I think we have to all know multiple. And I think one of those multiple has to be JavaScript anyway. So using JavaScript on the server side and Swift on the front end is not an issue. But but we'll see. It's an interesting thing to play around with for sure. Yeah, I'd love to hear that, how that comes out. The, the one concern I've got really just comes down to me doing a bit more, bit more R&D on it is to make sure that there's easy enough support for the actual hosting of the component. I don't want to have to fiddle around with a server in order to make sure I can deploy a Swift, Swift component. component. So whatever the whatever the component is that results in or that would result in you doing server side Swift. So what you really want is a statically compiled binary that doesn't have any extra dependencies. That's that's definitely my ideal. Uh, but it's got to be hosted in some kind of process, I would reckon. Um, I'm not really sure exactly what that looks like, uh, unless it's a self-hosting. Uh, binary, I guess. I, I'm not really sure. I'd need to do a bit more research on that. Yeah, I guess this is your R&D project. Um, 
when working with server-side Go, generally you would build a binary that um, that uh, serves the HTTP itself. Uh, I'd, I'd be interested to see what they do that uh, there with with Swift. I think that story with Swift would be exactly the same. You'd... Probably. Um... Yeah, I, I doubt that we'll be going back to the days of having Tomcat or JBoss or uh, what's the uh, IIS application pools and so on. Um, things seem to be going to a far more uh, compact kind of microservice way. Yeah. You're I was waiting for you to say microservice. Those are just services made in San Francisco. I think so. But I know that IBM is spending a lot of time in uh, yeah, investing in Swift, which is, which is great. Um, so I'm going to guess that their, their whole server-side infrastructure is going to be wired in a way that you can actually easily deploy Swift into that, into that infrastructure. That's interesting that IBM's going that way. Okay, didn't know that. It is, but IBM's also gone gone the Node route with them acquiring um, Strongloop, not last year, I think. Yeah, and wasn't there another company that acquired Cloudant or something like that? Also did a lot of Node work. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. It's, it's always interesting to see. I, I think you've also got to make sure that there's enough people that mm. can actually do the work. There's no point being the only person doing something. If if you actually want to work in a team, I, I think that's, I don't think that really works. So I'm hoping lots of the, the current cloud providers are going to start enabling developers to, to deploy and host Swift in, in their infrastructure just to kind of get the ball rolling. Very exciting times. Oh, wow, this looks like it's, it's pretty good. I like what I see. Definitely going to have to give this a shot. So if I do want to get started with Swift, uh, what's a good resource to open up with? to start doing a hello world? There's a couple of really good channels on, on YouTube, uh, which I can share with you guys and you can maybe put it in the, in the show. Please. Um, and it's, it's just useful because a lot of these, a lot of the way that they, they teach it is very much kind of recipe based. So we're going to do A, B and C and you're going to end up with, with this result. And we're going to do this, this and this, and you're going to end up with this kind of thing. Um, so a lot of them are very small lessons, which I think is a good way to learn. Um, and there's also, something called Playgrounds in, in Xcode, uh, which I think there's also an online version as well. I know IBM's got something similar where you can write Swift code and it, it effectively compiles it on the fly and you can see the results on the right-hand side. So like a, like a web-based uh, REPL. So the bottom line is get a Mac, install Xcode and start going through these resources. So I think it's, it's always prudent to get a Mac. I think that's always good advice. There's also a couple of other ways of doing it. Um, I think there's another IDE that you can actually write Swift in, which I think runs on Windows. Um, I think it's called Fire, if I'm not mistaken, F-I-R-E. I haven't used it, uh, but I think that is also available. Uh, but there's also online tutorials and, and online editors that you can use just to kind of get the basics of the, of the syntax going. I see here, Silver brings Apple's Swift language to .NET. That looks interesting. I have to take a look at that. It is. So you can then write Swift and you can target .NET, which is, which is quite an interesting combination of things. Yeah, I think my, my brain's just breaking on this one. <laughs> well, it's great to see such a healthy community around this then. Guys doing interesting stuff here. For sure. I, I don't think it's a good idea yeah. to choose a language that doesn't have a good community. I think it's, um, you're just going to be that person that doesn't know how to do something and you can't Google for it, which I'd, uh, I'd hate to be in that position. Cool. Uh, Len, have you got any other questions you want to bring to this or shall we start talking about some picks? 
let's let's close it down. Cool. Well, Simon, thanks for giving us the rundown so far of Swift. Um, have you got any picks you want to share with us? Uh, it doesn't have to be about Swift specifically. I do. So I can. I'll share some of the Swift specific ones. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you like an unrelated or somewhat related um, pick is to try and get hold of John Scully's book. Uh, he wrote, a, I guess, basically like an autobiography of his time at Apple, um, which is a really interesting book. I think it's called Odyssey. Uh, so for those that are keen for a, a kind of non-technical book about a technical world, which is exactly what that is, that was a really interesting book. So it talks about his joining Apple, why he joined Apple, getting rid of uh, jobs and, and that whole process. Um, just, just a really interesting thing to read a, a different side of the, the whole Apple saga. Cool. Um, Len, have you got any picks for us? Um, we've been doing a bunch of work with OAuth. We came across this OAuth server called Glue. That's spelled G-L-U-U. And it's pretty neat. It seems to work out of the box and have all the necessary bits and pieces to just kind of get going. So if you need a, an OAuth 2 provider, take a look. Okay, cool. Um, I've got a book pick this week, completely non-technical. Uh, I've been reading a book, well, I've read a book in the last few days called Fearless by Eric Blem. It's a biography of a US Navy SEAL who was uh, killed in action in 2010, uh, part of the Navy SEAL Team 6. And it was just quite an interesting book to read through. So if you're interested in this kind of thing, pick up the book. There's also an audio book. Cool. Well, uh, that brings us to the end. Um, Simon, thanks so much for joining us and talking about Swift. Definitely got to get you back on again one of these days. Chew your ear off about JavaScript and JSNSA. Uh, anything you want to uh, announce about JSNSA while we've got you on here? You can just give you 10 seconds on the soapbox. Or more if you insist. 10 seconds. Um, so we've We've kicked off the conference. It's going to happen on the 16th of July in Johannesburg. And the speakers, the request for speakers is open until the 1st of June. And we're going to open for tickets on the 1st of June as well. So if anyone's keen to speak, uh, by all means, uh, get in touch. And particularly those that haven't spoken at, at tech conferences before. We're really keen to, you know, to see fresh, you know, kind of new faces come in. I think that's the only way we're going to grow the industry is to try and encourage more new people into the into the industry and particularly into conferences. It's a good opportunity. Cool. And what that also means is that you need to set your alarm for six o'clock in the morning on 1st of June if you want to get a ticket. Yeah. So we're going to this last year we had 150. Uh, this year we're planning on 250 as a maximum. So we're definitely trying to cater for more and more people without without it becoming too big and and kind of soulless. So so that should be cool. So that'll be cool. I'm not sure exactly the, the times that we're going to open for tickets. We'll definitely let everyone know. Uh, I think the best option is just to keep an eye on our Twitter account, which is JSINSA. So JSNSA. Good luck with running that again this year. It's always fun. Thanks. That then brings us to the end of episode 40. Uh, you can... Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Please leave us a rating. Please get in contact with us through the ZA Developers Slack group. If you aren't in the Slack group, uh, just drop a message to us on Twitter and we'll make sure you get added into that. 
Until next week, that's it from ZA Dev Chat. Cheers.